Minnesota native Mara Vistendahl learned Mandarin because of her mother's history in China. Later, as a reporter in Shanghai, Vistendahl read about a Chinese man found behaving suspiciously in the middle of an Iowa cornfield. That odd little story led Vistendahl on a two-year reporting journey that uncovered a massive FBI industrial espionage investigation into the theft of genetically modified corn seeds by Chinese agribusinesses. Vistendahl's journey also had an unexpected personal twist. Being from the Midwest and having kind of found this case in China, I, I just kept feeling pulled back to it. Um, almost like I was meant to write a story about it. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Mara Vistendahl, author of the book *The Scientist and the Spy*. Mara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. You became a Mandarin speaker because of your mom's amazing story. What was that story? Sure. My mom was a missionary's daughter. She spent some of her high school years in Asia, and then moved back to the Midwest and you know had kids, got married, and after she divorced my father when I was four. She decided to spend a year applying to schools and studying Chinese again, and the um, the woman who became her Chinese tutor um, was also a single mom with a son around the same age as me and my brother, and so she was living in the dorm at uh, Saint Olaf College in southern Minnesota, and nobody there knew that she had a child. Uh, her name was Hong Yu, and so my mom thought, you know, let's get her out of the dorm. And Hong Yu and my mom ended up、um, moving in together and co-parenting me and my brother and my Chinese brother for a number of years, for five or six years. And you know, we we became quite close as a as a kind of、um, blended family. So you took Mandarin in college, and then you decided to move to Shanghai. Why did you move? I decided in college that I wanted to become a journalist. I took Mandarin the more just because of this personal interest, and I had always loved the language and the culture. And then I went to journalism school, and I was kind of in New York trying to freelance.、Um, I was working as a nanny and a waitress on the side. And an editor said to me, "You know, if you do speak Chinese, some Chinese,、uh, you probably should just go to China and you know, see if you can get your start there." So I packed up one or two bags and just moved. And I had a <laughs> I had a commitment from Harper's Magazine to pay me two hundred dollars a month to do some research for the magazine.、Um, I found a An apartment that cost a hundred fifty dollars a month,、um, so you know that left like fifty dollars for noodles. <laughs> I ate a lot of noodles, <laughs> and、um, at that time it was it was pretty affordable to live to live in China, and it was just a really really fascinating place.、Um, so I was in Shanghai. 
And you spent the next eight years, almost a period of eight years, reporting a tremendous amount of stories, very innovative stories, at the because you were there at the right time and there was a deep appetite for it. And how did you how did you come across the story of Robert Mo, this Chinese national found behaving suspiciously in the middle of an Iowa cornfield? That was relatively late into my time in China. Um, by then, I had a husband and a baby. Uh, my daughter had been born, and my daughter was maybe a year and a year and a half old. I was kind of looking for bigger projects again, and um, I came across this story of a man named Robert Moore who was found in this cornfield in Iowa. Uh, I remember sitting at my desk in our high rise in Shanghai and uh, reading about it in the New York Times. And then, you know, at that point I was working for science. My job involved doing a lot of interviews with Chinese scientists and following them into the field. Uh, but here's this sort of unique situation where uh, suddenly these uh, abuses in the, in the sciences would become uh, a national security focus for the U.S. government. I, I hadn't seen a case quite like that before. Um, it turned out that there, there would be dozens of them brought over the coming years. And, you know, then being from the Midwest and having kind of found this case in China, I, I just kept feeling pulled back to it. Um, it was like I was meant to write a story about it. So who was Robert? Where was he from? And why was he in that cornfield? And why did it become literally a federal case? Uh, he's an engineer from Sichuan province who had moved to the United States, like, like many um, well-educated Chinese, to pursue a job in the sciences. He went to get a second PhD there in the field of thermodynamics and had this kind of classic academic story where he could not find a tenure track position. And so through nepotism, he got a job at a Beijing agricultural company that his sister worked for. And that company had hatched this somewhat harebrained plan to literally steal seeds out of the ground um, in the United States and reverse engineer the seed lines of Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer, another seed company. And why was this such a big deal for uh this company, and I think you said there were other similar cases with other companies. Why were these genetically engineered seeds from Monsanto and DuPont so so precious for Chinese businesses and for the Chinese government? Well, China was at a point where as it's developing, people were eating higher and higher up the food chain, um, eating more and more like Americans. And to um, to get meat, you need animal feed, uh, which often comes from corn and soy. And uh, China did not have the kind of high quality seed lines that were needed to make that. And so one way would have been to spend years of research developing them. DBN, the company that Robert worked for, saw this shortcut of going to the United States to steal them. And I guess the China is the biggest importer of soy and corn for this for this particular reason, right? They have more and more affluence and people wanting to eat meat. Mm, that's right. That's right. 
And I mean, the plan that they came up with was elaborate and also very silly at the same time. You know, it involved buying farms in the Midwest, posing as farmers there, at one point trying to smuggle seeds back to China in microwave popcorn bags. And, and the reaction of the FBI was equally outsized. You know, they spent two years investigating Robert Moore and his colleagues, and they used car chases, uh, surveillance planes, so they, these sort of unmarked planes registered under fake company names that the FBI would fly in circles over the Midwest to keep track of the suspects. And they even collected evidence using a FISA warrant, which is meant to be reserved for extreme national security threats. So this became a, a major case for the United States. What was interesting about the reason they were using planes was, and you can talk a little bit about the drama and the craziness of all this, is because of these vast uh, miles and miles of uh, you know Iowa landscapes where there's no not a car in sight. And so if they had been surveilling him by car, oftentimes they would be seen, right? So they had to resort to these crazy devices and techniques. That's right. It was it was either that or really low speed car chases because the problem was that um, Robert and his colleagues were driving fairly slow because they were looking for specific fields and then they would stop in the field, gather a few ears of corn or some seeds, and then get back in the car. And so then the FBI had to kind of trail behind them, but with inconspicuously. Uh, which you know turned out to be quite difficult, um, and I went and like basically retraced all the steps and scenes in this case, and so you know I was driving those same roads and kicking up clouds of dust myself, and I came to kind of understand how that happened. And the crazy thing is, Robert actually lived in in Florida, so mm -hmm. he had to like make these trips frequently and. What were kind of some of your favorite scenes of, of him and a couple of his accomplices like going through these cornfields? So crazy. So he got this job because he wanted to support his wife and kids. His you know dream of an academic position did not work out. And initially, he was hired to do legal work for the company, like sourcing animal feed, sourcing other agricultural products. And then his job um, kind of spiraled out of control to the point where he was working on this illegal operation. Uh, he was very, he was very un uncomfortable with it. He, you know, he later told me that, and there are a number of signs that he was uncomfortable. And he tried to extricate himself a few times. He did not succeed, though. And you know, ultimately, there were directions from the company back in Beijing to come up with a hundred seed lines, and you know, that's a that's a massive number when they all need to be smuggled back to China, kind of labeled in envelopes. Sometimes they sent them through FedEx or UPS. Um, sometimes they tried to carry them on the plane. And sometimes they used the microwave popcorn bag approach. <laughs> and these were literally thousands of seeds. We're talking thousands and thousands. Sometimes mm -hmm. their packaging cost was like $1,000 a box, right? Or, right. Mm -hmm. So Robert also ended up hiring a U.S. national, Kevin Montgomery, who was a well-meaning seed breeder who wound up becoming an FBI informant. That's right. I found Kevin two years into my reporting. 
Um, so at that point, I already knew a lot of the people involved with the case. I thought I knew kind of the basic trajectory that the story had, would take. And then I was driving around Southern Illinois, knocking on doors, trying to find people who had come into contact with Robert, could kind of describe him to me. And I found out that Kevin had been working for Robert and DBN for several months as a consultant. And then one day he was coming in from the fields and it was a very hot day in July. So he's wearing like cutoff shorts and a t-shirt and a belt filled with tools. And the FBI pulls up and he says to agents in suits and like sunglasses, dark sunglasses get out. And um, after that encounter, he becomes an informant for the FBI. And so he was just a fascinating character because he had this insight into both sides. I, I think one of my favorite scenes in the book was that first conversation with the FBI agent sitting at the table and they're in suits and glasses and he's got his cutoff shorts yeah. and he's drinking glass after glass of lemonade because it's so hot <laughs> and they can't accept a drink because they can only accept drink from a con closed containers. So they're slowly starting to fade over five hours of questioning. I thought that was amazing color and drama. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Kevin is very detail oriented. So he'd written a lot of this down months before I met him. He'd written a play by play account of that interview for his friends. And uh, so he was a, a great source. It was, uh, you know, felt lucky that I was able to meet him. But I did also spend a lot of time talking to Robert Moore himself and also to the lead FBI agent on the case. And I really tried to construct this story from all of these three perspectives and to tell it through their eyes. So you have these three interwoven narratives, one of which is happening from the perspective of Robert Moore and one from the perspective of the FBI agent, Mark Benton, and then a third from Kevin. So tell us briefly, without giving away the end for potential readers, what uh, happened to Robert and his accomplices? I mean, Robert always feared that he was going to get caught. What happened? The FBI did catch him. And, you know, it was a pretty dramatic arrest one morning in December, um, agents swarming the house and so forth. What ensued was a extended battle in court um, part of which I was able to be present for. And um, his lawyers fought so hard that they were able to get you know, many, many documents um, showing that gave a lot of visibility into what the US government had done in, this, in the course of this investigation. And so for me as a journalist, that was really fascinating. And that allowed me to um, turn this into a very rich story. Um, there were several airport busts uh, that happened in the book. And I had dialogue, you know, what the FBI said to people at those specific moments. Um, they had also bugged the vehicles of Robert and his colleagues. And so, you know, I knew what they were saying in the car to each other as they were driving around the Midwest. And some of it was kind of comical. You know, they would joke about Jackie Chan movies and then talk about you know, why Americans need such big cars and why Walmart is open late. And, um, you know, all of these just very rich details um, came out in that process. 
it's absolutely amazing the level of detail that you went into when you when you started the story uh uh, reporting. It's, it was the story of Robert, but it ended up being sort of a much bigger story. How did the story evolve over time? Well, from the beginning, I was interested in this case because there were so many other cases happening at the same time. R Roberts was, in, in, a, in a way, the most colorful manifestation of this um, crackdown on trade secrets theft, but there were several other cases. And so I, I saw that focusing in, in, on this one case would be a way to tell this broader story. And these range from cases where somebody stole military technology and, and it was quite cut and dry, you know, like for example, the person had stored um, reams and reams of documents under his house, but two cases where um, the FBI showed up on someone's doorstep to arrest him and the scientist turned out to be completely innocent. So as my reporting went on, I, I was hearing from um, activists and, um, you know, others who were working on this issue that there's a lot of concern that the U.S. government was unfairly targeting Chinese Americans, and in some cases bringing, bringing cases um, where you know, people were charged prematurely or charged completely unfairly. And a startling statistic in your book was that when the FBI, after the FBI shifted focus from law enforcement to national security, uh, economic espionage became such a top priority that they actually have investigations, cases open in all 50 states. So this is a huge government priority. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, FBI Director Christopher Ray said recently that there are over a thousand active investigations. And, you know, I think any time our national security priorities shift, uh, we need to examine those more, more carefully, you know, as we learned after 9-11. Um, a legitimate threat can sometimes provoke uh, overreaction or a wrong reaction. And we have to make sure that that doesn't happen in the case of um, Chinese technology theft. And one of the things uh, you talk about is this uh, undercurrent of uh, racism, essentially in the criminal justice system and in the in sort of the court system too. And the fact that ethnicity has become a factor in FBI investigations of, of Chinese scientists. Oh, it's definitely become a factor. And I mean, so even in the case of Robert Moore, where he you know, was guilty of a crime, uh, by the time the case was winding its way toward trial, the ethnicity had become so fraught in these cases that the judge actually banned all mention of him being Chinese. At, um, at trial. And the reason for that history in part is that um, going back to the 1960s and 70s, uh, the, the FBI really heavily scrutinized uh, Chinese American scientists in the United States. And these included US citizens. Um, and, and part of my research, I was able to get documents using the Freedom of Information Act request, um, showing that there was a dedicated FBI program devoted to um, surveilling 
Chinese American scientists. So there's a lot of resentment and suspicion now um, that's left over from that era and, and also a factor of, of more recent cases, um, like the Wen Holi case, like the um, uh, like these cases in the past few years where innocent people were arrested. Your book is also about the corporatization of agriculture and the global seed market and this um, intense amount of consolidation that's taken place. How did that play into this story and other seed theft cases? I mean, what is the, there's this other underlying big story behind this. That's right, and that's a and that's a story I didn't set out to find. Um, it came up as I talked with more people who work in agriculture and farmers, um, talking with Kevin, uh, Kevin Montgomery, the informant. He he was himself a victim of corporate consolidation. He'd been he'd been laid off uh, in in mergers. Uh, you know, if you look at that industry, it's been characterized by massive consolidation. So, you know, just decades ago, there were dozens or hundreds of seed companies in, in the United States. And now there are four major global seed companies that control much of the market. And so these cases uh, involving Chinese trade secrets theft are ostensibly brought to um, protect American innovation and keep America competitive. Um, but it does raise the question of then why we go to such great lengths to protect an industry that is already in many ways anti-competitive. Uh, and there is this irony where by the time I finished my reporting, Monsanto was no longer even an American company. So it had um, been acquired by Bayer, uh, the German conglomerate. And that meant that the U.S. government had spent um, untold resources defending this company that then felt no loyalty um, to the United States. And I think one of the important points you make is that in the FBI's desire to go after these cases and to make a point that they were pretty cozy with uh, a lot of these big companies. And so someone like Robert had no chance, right? You have these huge conglomerates with, with deep pockets for legal fees and you mm -hmm. have this close relationship with the FBI, how does someone like Robert, obviously he did wrong, but you know, the, just the scales of justice seem a little bit. Well, there is this fear, you know, US companies sue each other all the time for trade secrets theft um, and they pay their own legal fees and, and it's part of their general IP strategy. Um, there is this fear that because uh, the cases with China become a national security issue that um, you know people are being uh, charged because they tried to go to a competitor or you know they tried to find a job back in China, uh, and that um, kind of routine business behaviors are being criminalized as a result. The current Chinese premier Xi Jinping actually had a cameo role in this plot. What was it? I think he actually <laughs> made a visit to Iowa, didn't he? He did. Also, that was another thing that made this case so appealing was that you had all of these um, big players come in and out of the of the case at various moments. And so at one point, um, uh, just before he 
ascended to the role of leader, uh, who's then, you know, the so-called vice president, Xi Jinping traveled to Iowa to um, give a speech on agriculture. And uh, Robert Mueller was actually sitting in the audience at that event, and the FBI was waiting outside. And so um, here, Xi Jinping is inside talking about how the U.S. and China are going to collaborate on agriculture, and um, the two sides work out this deal for China to buy uh, more goods from Iowa. But even at that moment, you can already see that the um, seeds, <laughs> no pun intended, of the conflict are in place. And um, that kind of escalates over the course of the book. What's the state of play today as President Donald Trump and the Chinese premier go toe-to-toe -to -toe on all of these, you know, trade wars and technology transfer and all these big issues? Well, tensions are certainly escalating. Uh, and it's interesting because the trade war has affected so many farmers in the Midwest. Every now and then, a, um, uh, an official will go back to Iowa and give a speech about this seed case to kind of remind people that uh, the trade war is worth it because we're fighting this sort of agricultural espionage. And like just, just last year, Mike Pompeo uh, flew to Des Moines and, and talked about Robert Mo. So, so he continues to be uh, this pawn in this uh, global rivalry with China. And is it affecting Chinese students or science, scientists here, uh, this kind of tension? Oh, very much, yes. Um, under the Trump administration, uh, prosecutions involving China have picked up. Um, the Justice Department launched something called the China Initiative in 2018 and um, it's become a major focus. Uh, the FBI has also done a number of investigations at research institutions, um, even, even interviewing American students on study abroad programs to China. Uh, and, and there's a real concern there because China does have this concerted influence campaign um, you know, the, it came out this week that the FBI is even interested in election meddling from China. And, and certainly the Chinese government is doing what they can to uh, mess up <laughs> American politics and to filch technology and so forth. But there is, again, this risk that we could overreact. And any time that there is... Um, a botched investigation or an investigation that doesn't quite work out as planned, it feeds into the narrative in China. And you know, so the state press will seize on these cases where people were innocent or where they were hounded for several years for stealing corn. And those become part of the Chinese government's rallying cry for attracting people back to China. And I think as these court documents kind of expose some of the the tradecraft and the and the methods employed that can also have an impact. You have a section where you talk about Robert's sister when she brings her kids to the U.S. for a trip to, I guess, Disneyland. What happened to her, and what what kind of a message did that send? Yes, she. So Robert's sister was the one who made the, the introduction to the company in the first place for him. Um, she's married to the CEO of DBN. 
um, but had really like stepped away from working for the company. And then she went on vacation with her kids. Um, her name was on a watch list. And so since when she arrived in America, that triggered uh, an alert to the FBI and they um, hightailed it to Los Angeles to arrest her on her way back to China. The, the issue though, is that she had her kids in tow. So there was this difficult decision. And, um, and, and I really believe it was difficult for the FBI agent facing it about whether you know, to have the kids handed over to social services in the United States or to put them back to, on the plane to China by themselves. And the younger, the girl was, I think, five or six at the time. And um, so this was really dramatic scene, uh, which I had visibility into um, because of all of the uh, court documents and testimony that was given about it. I, I think the, your underlying message of the solo American farmers being the loser in all of these, you know, games is the story of Kevin, because he is well-meaning, he's incredibly hardworking, he's so detail-oriented, he loves seeds. And you kind uh -huh. of see that he he just can't go up against these big conglomerates and the big mm -hmm. system and succeed in any way. That's right. Yeah. In the end, it's this issue isn't just about the United States and China. It's it's also about this, we're in this era now where corporations have more and more power. And uh, when we look at how um, to make the research base more innovative, we have to um, keep in mind that cases brought on behalf of these companies may just help them become more powerful. You know, I at the same time, I tried to, I tried to come at this topic from a place of just sympathy for um, the common person in both in China and in the Midwest and to really look at who are the who are the people on the ground who are affected by these cases and so one of them was Kevin but there are also a number of other farmers um, both in the US and China who who I talked to so in the six-year investigation, right, they, the, um, there was a message that was intended to be sent to China. Do you think that using Robert as the example did convey that message? I'm skeptical that the government achieved what it wanted to with this case. Uh, in the end, there were seven people charged, including Robert. Um, five of them are still on the FBI's most wanted list. Um, charges against the sixth person were dropped, and so only Robert ends up, uh, ends up ends up paying any consequences for what happened. And um, meanwhile, DBN, the company that he worked for, uh, is going strong. You know, their stock prices took a dip initially, but they recovered, and the company may actually have the IP that it stole. Um, you know, somebody I interviewed compared this strategy to addressing the war on drugs by just going after the low-level street dealers, like arresting the guys on a corner, basically, at, while ignoring the court cartels. And I think something similar may be happening in these, in these trade secret cases. 
um, we have these kind of low-level people who are dispatched to get information, um, or you know, they try to they maybe take a few documents and so forth. Um, and then the bigger picture, meanwhile, is left under unaddressed. I know you learned a lot about uh, industrial espionage and uh, uh, all of the related uh, uh, complexities of agriculture uh, from this book, but your journey also had an unexpected personal twist on you as a person, given your childhood and your background. What, what was that? That I, well, we did end up moving back to the Midwest and and sort of reliving <laughs> my childhood here with my with my own children, uh, who are now growing up in Minnesota, like I did. One thing I thought about and that that helped shape the book when I came back is um, the experience of being a foreigner here. Uh, you know, living in China, lived in China for so many years that it felt very comfortable to me. Uh, it was very comfortable with the language. It's comfortable with the the food and the street life and everything. And I, after a while I would kind of forget that I didn't belong. Um, but there was never, uh, you could never fully forget that because then the next minute somebody would remind you and turn around and say like, oh, you know, you're, you're a foreigner. <laughs> and, I, and coming back to the Midwest, I have a feeling that um, that must be what it's like for, um, for some ethnic Chinese people here, uh, even in people who've Whose, whose families have been here for, for generations. It's not really analogous in the same way in that uh, white people occupy this position of privilege uh, in general in Asia. Um, but it did shape how I thought about, about this case and about some of the scenes I was describing. Wonderful. Mara, thank you. That was an amazing conversation and a great book. I think everybody should read it. It's it's great, great context into what's going on in the world today. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Mara Vistendahl is the author of the book, The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage. In addition to her groundbreaking coverage of China's renaissance in science and technology as a correspondent in Shanghai for science, Vistendahl's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Popular Science, and Wired. Her book, Unnatural Selection, was a finalist of the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.